Hey, this is Jeff. Do you like the show? Do you want to see the show grow and prosper? Better yet, do you like kids? Do you want to see kids grow and prosper? How about world peace? Do you like world peace? Do you want to end global warming and save the planet? If so, head over to patreon.com, search for Deep in Japan, and make a pledge today. I'll love you. My kids will love you. The planet will love you. Hell, even the Buddha will love you. How do I know this? The same way I know everything. I listen to my heart. Now listen to your heart and head over to patreon.com and make a pledge today. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-A. Do it for the dolphins. All right, welcome to the Deep in Japan podcast. Today, once again, we have Dr. Debito Ardo, author of, among other things, Embedded Racism, Japan's Visible Minorities and Racial Discrimination. Welcome to the show, Dr. Debito. Thank you for having me back. Today, we're actually going to take a deeper look at your latest book. So what I've done is I've highlighted some quotes that I think are particularly juicy or interesting. I'm just going to have you kind of riff on it and talk a little bit about what that means, maybe place it in context. No need to get too scholarly. We're just going to have a, a discussion here. But let me hit you with the first one, okay? Yes, please. This is something that, although it may have been implicit in our last talk, we didn't actually say explicitly. And it's one of the, one of the facts in the book that, that I was particularly bowled over by. This comes from page three, and it goes like this. Japan portrays itself as a society predicated upon the rule of law, yet Japan has a curious legal contradiction. Racial discrimination is unconstitutional, but not illegal. Well, if something's in the Constitution, it means that it's enshrined in law in the sense that it's a goal or a template. But if it doesn't have any sort of laws to back it up, i.e. enforceable laws, then it's not really a law yet. So if you were to go to a place and find that you're refused and you go to the police and say to them, look, this place turned me away because I'm a foreigner, the police are going to say, well, they're not doing anything illegal. And if you point to the Constitution, it says this, you shall not do that. Then they're going to say, well, yeah, that's the Constitution, but point me to a law, the civil or criminal code that says you cannot do that. And the fact is, there isn't anything like that in Japan, unfortunately. And this of, is despite the UN kind of putting pressure on Japan to do so for a while now, right? Oh, yeah. Japan signed the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination. It's a UN treaty. They signed that all the way back in, in 1996. And it's been effective for 20 years now. And Japan still has no laws. And it even says in the treaty, this is a promise that Japan made to the United Nations and to the world community that would pass laws. Take all effective measures against racial discrimination, including legislation. And Japan has not kept that promise. As such, racial discrimination in Japan remains unconstitutional, yet not illegal. As someone who lives in Japan who is a minority, <laughs> it's kind of freaks me out. But um, anyway, let's, uh, let's move on to the next quote, which comes from page 17. Here we go. There is a common belief that both inside and outside of Japan, that Japan's, quote, insular spirit, Shimaguni Konjo, 
and homogeneous race, Tanitsu Minzoku, has existed from time immemorial due to Japan's ocean-bounded geography and political isolation, Sakoku, during its Tokugawa era, from 1603 to 1868. However, abundant scholarship demonstrates that Japan's insular homogeneity narrative was a post-World War II creation. As per the nation-state building process, there was the need to unify the people under a shared history and imagined community, that is, in Japan's case, behind the emperor myth. What I found interesting about this quote is that I just sort of assumed that this narrative went all the way back to the beginning of Japan. No, it didn't. Japan, when it became an expansionary power, actually extolled virtues of heterogeneity. In fact, in the League of Nations, Japan was the first nation to say, we should have a racial discrimination law enshrined inside the charter, inside the treaty, to make sure that the quote-unquote yellow powers are not discriminated against the quote-unquote white powers. Japan said this. Why? Because it was saying that, well, we are not colonizing people of a different color. We are, if anything, colonizing people of the same color in Asia. Therefore, we better understand these people than you do, and we're not making them into mere resource colonies. Of course, that wasn't true, but that was what they were arguing. So Japan said, we're not practicing racial discrimination. We're practicing liberation of a fellow shared race. And that hybridization, heterogeneity, was played up until 1945 as one of Japan's colonizing strengths. Well, this narrative seems to have worked so well that in the post-war era in Japan, and I'm going I'm to skip ahead now to page 21, we now have this sort of narrative of invisibility through homogeneity. And I'm going to quote you here. Japan has long claimed that there are no, quote, minorities at all within its borders, and for a long period of its history did not see race as the ultra-centrifuge of human classification. Scholarship on Japan shared this view. It again is, I think, an elaboration of how Japan saw itself as liberating people of the same color. Therefore, when it's convenient for Japan to say we're one homogeneous people. See, do you see any minorities out there? No, they're all one big happy family of of um, yellow people, if you will. I hate using the word yellow people, but you know that's that is um, oshokujinshu is what's used in the Japanese, and that's not, that is used even in social science circles in Japan. So. When you have people that which is are, yellow people, yes, Oshoku is, is yellow people exactly. That's, so that you're you're not you're not applying this term to them. This is actually one of the terms that was used historically, anyway. Not even historically, currently too. When oh, you're kidding, really? Classification wow. of people happens rampantly all over Japanese social science. So Oshoku Jinshu is not seen as a as a nasty word all that much in a lot of circles. It's just seen as a fact of the case. So. My point is that you have a number of people that are invisible in Japan, as in that they're not visible as minorities. And so it's easy to paper over it to say, well, you, we don't really have minorities in the same sense that the West does. Therefore, we don't have discrimination in the same sense as the West does. We don't even have racial discrimination because, after all, if they're not visible, then it's not a racial issue. I'm sorry, that's not the way racial discrimination works. Again, as I defined in my previous podcast with you, 
Discrimination, racialized processes are a process of differentiating, othering, and subordinating. Differentiating can happen under any circumstances. It doesn't have to be by skin color. It can be by social class, for example. Discrimination mm. against the Burakumin, Japan's historical underclass, even though they are phenotypically and, if you will, genotypically the same as quote-unquote Japanese, is still discrimination, and it's still racialized discrimination because of the process. Same thing of discrimination towards Koreans. Same thing against other minorities, the Ainu or the Ryukyuan, Southern Islander peoples, um, south of mainland Japan. All those people face discrimination, but because they're not visible minorities, it's very easy for not only Japan, but many Western scholars to argue that, well, it's not the same kind of discrimination as you see elsewhere. So therefore, we have to find a different way to classify it as discrimination. I'm arguing in this book, it's all racial discrimination. Visible minorities, invisible minorities, it doesn't matter. It's the same process. And for any research, and there is some research that I talk about in the book that does show blind spots toward this sort of thing, I call out and say, sorry, this doesn't fall under modern definitions of racism that should be updated by now to study Japan as well. Okay, well, um, let's jump ahead once again. Thank you for that. I want to talk a little bit about the three major court lawsuits against discriminatory businesses in Japan that you outlined in your book. Um, you go into great detail about this in your book, but I was wondering if you could just rather briefly summarize the three, beginning with the Anna Bortz case. And then at the end, we can talk a little bit about how how these cases differ and what they sort of indicate, because they happen in, in different periods and they kind of reveal something, I would say, about Japan's stance on these sorts of things. Um, but anyway, let's let's start off just um, with the Anna Bortz case. Could you summarize that? Sure. The Anna Bortz case happened in 1998 when Anna Bortz, a Brazilian um, lady, went into a jewelry store in Hamamatsu, which is a city in Shizuoka Prefecture that incidentally has a very high Brazilian-Japanese population. Why? Because there's a lot of factories there that bring in workers from other countries, namely Brazil. Well, she went into the jewelry store, a place called Sebido, and was turned away by the management. They, he cited a sign on his wall, quite nastily, we have a videotape of this from his security camera, thrusting the sign in her face saying, this is for Japanese only, no foreigners are allowed in here, and he called the police. He said, leave her, I call the police. She said, go ahead and call the police. The police came, and what do you think happened? He's not doing anything illegal, so they couldn't, they couldn't do anything to stop this from happening. Anna Bortz was forced to leave the store. She sued that jewelry store. And in 1999, October, a landmark ruling came down, Japan's first to cite the freshly signed 1996 United Nations Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination. I'm going to call it the CERD from now on. So mm -hmm. there was the first lawsuit to cite the CERD and say, this is an international treaty that we signed and it has the force of law in Japan. He might not have a law that explicitly says thou shalt not discriminate, but it's clear that under this treaty, what the jewelry store did was wrong. And so the jewelry store was fined a certain amount of money, and Anna Bortz emerged victorious from that. So that legal precedent was set. Now, so basically, in this first case, the judge says, look, the, the CERD holds, we're going to make that, in a sense, the law of the land. Yes, then the next case popped up, and that's actually the case involving you at the Otaro Onsen, right? Yes. We talked about this in the last podcast, but 
Perhaps there are some people who who didn't listen to that. Would you mind just quite briefly summarizing that? Yes. From 1993 onwards, there were places, public bathhouses in Japan that allow in families and children that were putting up signs saying Japanese only in a city called Otaru, which is in Hokkaido. It's a seaport town. We went and investigated after a friend of ours was refused entry, ostensibly for being foreign. Well, we went there with an international group to take a bath, and they refused not only myself, but also an American and another and another gentleman from Germany who were along with their Japanese families, and they were refused simply for looking foreign. They also refused one of my children for looking too foreign as well, even though that she's born and raised in Japan, has Japanese citizenship, and has a Japanese mother. So... This became a case where a bunch of places in Japan saw that people could be refused in, with impunity and started putting up their own Japanese-only signs across the country. After 15 months, we'd had enough of this. We couldn't get the signs down in this one particular onsen, a place called Yunohana. So we, as in the German gentleman, myself, and one other American friend, sued the onsen or bathhouse for racial discrimination and we also sued the city of otaru for not enforcing the uncerd so and you had good legal precedent for this given the board's case that's correct yes but how did that turn out this went to the sapporo district court and they ruled that the onsen had committed a not an illegal act, but an unlawful act. And the difference is that illegal means it's against the law. Unlawful means it goes against the spirit of the law. And they said that, yes, the onsen had done the wrong thing, but it had basically been guilty of carrying out unlawful discrimination for doing it too much. In other words, there's too much discrimination. The caveat being that there is such a thing as lawful discrimination or rational discrimination, as it's called in Japan. Gori tekisabetsu is what it's called. Yeah, I was <laughs> like, I have this double underlined in my book, unrational or irrational discrimination translated as fugori uh, tekinasabetsu. Is there such a thing as rational discrimination well, against can... people? If you want to get legalistic, and of course they did, this is a court of law, the rationale is that, well, you have male and female bathrooms, you have male and female bathhouses, they're segregated, right? It is rational mm -hmm. for males and females to be put separately, right? So there mm -hmm. is a degree in which you can actually differentiate and other people into different categories for the smooth running of society. This legal concept has been roundly criticized by the United Nations on several occasions and is not really found in other legal systems, especially in Western ones. So what happened was we won against the bathhouse. However, we lost against the city. The city in particular was told that, well, yeah, you should have not allowed this to happen under the UNCERD, but it's no more than a political duty in that a political entity has to have some wiggle room to allow for legislative processes to take wing. And we, we waited for 15 months for them to do. We even submitted laws, draft laws, to the Otara City Assembly, which were buried in committee. And they still said, well, they could have taken other measures. They hadn't exhausted all measures. Maybe they could have done something else other than pass legislation. Because of that, we'll say, eh, don't worry about it. It's not really something that we're going to hold the city accountable for. So we took it to the next court, the Sapporo High Court. They ruled the same thing with a few more bells and whistles added on, saying that if they 
had actually punished the city for not passing a law, it would go against the separation of powers. You cannot have the judiciary forcing the legislative to make laws. And finally, we took it to the Supreme Court of Japan, and the Supreme Court of Japan ruled in a summary judgment that this did not involve any constitutional issues, which is absurd. Yeah, this is interesting. I mean, basically, the court is saying we're not going to make any legislation based on racial discrimination. We're, we're going to kind of just push this away and ignore it, in a sense. Yes. The good news is that they did award damages for this discriminatory activity, to, in a sense, to punish the discriminator. So that's a, that precedent was set. The unfortunate precedent that was set was that the government is not responsible for doing anything about it. If the government does nothing, in fact, if the government actually does something, they could be penalized in that if they actually pass a law against racial discrimination and mm -hmm. it doesn't work and you sue, then you can actually hold the government culpable for that. But if you don't pass a law, then it falls under the wriggle room, the sort of, uh, I'm trying to remember the English for it. The They have to have... Um, Discretion? Yes, that's the word I'm looking for. And I'm trying to think what the word is for Japanese. That is Thank you. Okay, yes. Yeah. The precedent set was that it had to have discretion, saidyo, and under that discretion is that if they don't pass a law, it's a, it's governmental discretion. If they do, they can be held accountable for it. So the incentive is not to pass a law. Mm. I noticed that um, as it was passed along to higher courts, the defendant, Yunohana Onsen, also was uh, appealing, and he was claiming that you guys are ataria, in a sense, gold diggers. But how much money was he actually fined? Did it cover, in any sense, the legal fees that you incurred, the time invested? What, what are we talking about? We're talking about each plaintiff in the case receiving kakumayen, or, or 1 million yen. 1 million yen in yen sounds nice, but it's $10,000 at some exchange rates. And that does not cover the legal fees, mental anguish, and all of the efforts we put into this for years and years to try and set a legal precedent, and also just to get a sense of justice. The onsen owner... It didn't matter to him. After a while, he just opened up two more bathhouses afterwards, one in another part of Otaru and another in, of all places, the place where my former university employer was. Every morning I drove by it. So it was like, oh, yeah, I remember you. <laughs> there he is. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so it's ironic that uh, people think that, well, they must have done this for money-making purposes. You don't make money out of lawsuits in Japan. It's just the common no. practices is not, you don't get punitive damages. I take it that he's no, he no longer has signs up saying no foreigners. Is, is that correct? Apparently not. Did you ever stop in after that to just kind of, you know, take a dip? Not to hello? take a dip or to say hello, but I drove past to make sure the signs weren't up anymore. And I heard from yeah. other friends whether or not they were allowing people. And I knew the place in my workplace hometown, a place called Ebetsu in Japan. Yes, they did not have signs up and they were allowing in foreigners. And also in a place called Asadi as well, they were fine with that. And the main place... Uh, no, I never went back to have a look, really, except outside. And You're a better man than me. If, if, if I had been you, I probably would have taken a gaggle of 20 foreigners and went and had a dip at least once a week for a couple months after the court ruling. <laughs> yeah, I was after this whole thing. You know, this thing took years. It took more than five years for this all to come down the pike. Spiritually draining, physically, mentally draining, I would suppose. Very much so. 
But that's by design because this lawsuits in Japan, they happen in the millions every year. But people say Japan is not a, lit, is not a litigious society. They don't, they don't sue each other. That's just not true. But there's plenty of systemic means to drain plaintiffs of their energies for doing this sort of thing, not least the social opprobrium that is heaped on people for being seen as troublemakers, for just being activists. Remember, in Japan, activism is frowned upon. It's seen as a form of extremism. So the Otada Onsen's case... Yes, it put the issue on the map, but it also made us look like busybody do-gooders who were trying to either block in the good name of Japan or were trying to do this for personal profit. None of this was true. All right. Um, let's, let's move on to the next case, which is actually uh, a little bit later in time, 2004 to 2006. It's known as the McGowan case, and this was in Daito City, Osaka Prefecture. Can you talk a little bit about this case? Sure. Steve McGowan is an African-American gentleman, very flamboyant, very nice guy, state of his place, married to a Japanese, who went with his wife to a eyeglass store called G-Style. And the first time he went with his wife, there wasn't any problems, but he was so impressed with the service there that he decided to bring back a friend of his, another um, African, actual African, I think, from South Africa. So, so basically, visibly, this is two black guys heading to the eye shop. Yes. Without any Japanese friends or acquaintances. Right. Let me just re- let me revamp that. He took his friend back to this place. It was a black South African friend. So yes, it's two black guys coming in all by themselves. And what happens? The owner, Mr. Narita, freaked out. He said, I don't like foreigners. I don't like black people. He actually said, not foreigners, but black people. Kokujin ga kirai is what he said. He said, don't touch the window. Go away. A number of other things that made it clear that he was refusing them, not just because they were foreign, but because they were black, African, American, or African. So what did they do? Steve was extremely offended by this, but before he went to court, he and I and a couple of other people, a number of other activists, went back to see this Mr. Narita. And Mr. Narita made it very clear, and we tape recorded this, that he did not like black people. He had a personal dislike, a visceral dislike of black this people. This is on tape? It's on tape. And we brought it to he's, court. He's saying, kokujin ga kirai. Not, I mean, it's interesting to point out here that guy kokujin, foreigner, and kokujin, black person, sounds similar, incredibly similar. Yes. But you have him on tape saying... I, I don't like black people. That's correct. And even his wife, who was a native speaker, said as such. And of course, we have, you know, any native speaker can listen to the tape and get the gist. But the point was that when, he, when Steve did eventually take it to court, the judge ruled against Steve, saying that, well, he probably just misunderstood the Japanese or, well, you know, it, it's not really all that clear that he was to, he was. He's suing for discrimination against black people. Now, this, if anything, is discrimination against foreigners, so this isn't quite what he's suing for, so therefore I'm going to dismiss this case for suing for the wrong thing. It's the same logic of if I get hit by a car and I sue for damages because I got hit by a car, and the judge says, no, you weren't hit by a car, you were hit by a truck, so you don't get any damages. It's the same sort of nitpicking that the judges have discretion to do in Japanese society every now and again. That's why you see some pretty strange... That's why you see some pretty strange decisions come down the pike in Japan. This judge clearly also had a thing about Steve and decided to say he doesn't have a case, despite clear evidence of visceral dislike, racially disliking Steve McGowan. Looking at these three cases and the results 
What do you think this says about the status of, of discrimination in Japan? The first case showed that the CERD was binding and that it could have the force of law. That's the Anna Board's case. The second case, the Otter case, actually stepped back from saying the CERD has force of law and started saying, well, we do have something in Japan civil code that can apply here, so we will apply it here. So it's uh, saying international treaty doesn't really have the same potency. And it also said that it definitely does not have any effect over government decisions. The final lawsuit simply said, we're going to disqualify this on technicalities because this guy, well, just because, just because I'm a judge and I say I can. McGowan did take it to the higher court and he did win, but he only won a pittance, not even enough to cover his legal costs. So that decision was overturned. But it made it clear that every single time if you sue, you're going to get less money than before. And the precedent is going to chip away and say, we don't want people to sue because they're being refused for being foreign or for any reason that seems to be racialized. We're just going to say, if there's any way that we can get out of ruling on this, calling it racial discrimination, we will. So in a sense, if you're a foreigner in Japan, let's say that's turned away from a business, you really don't have any good legal means to attack this. I mean, you, you you could pursue it. You could sue. You're going to spend a lot of time and a lot of money in what could turn out to be a slap on the wrist. I think that's a fairly accurate assessment because not only, as I mentioned earlier, the social opprobrium for suing as well, but there's just no real sense of justice. The Japanese court system, I'm not exactly a a complete legal scholar. I don't have a law degree, but based upon my studies of other people who do, the role of the judiciary in Japan is not to dispense justice. It is to act as an intermediary, and it is to say that, okay, this party has some fault, but also this party has some fault. It's quite rare when the judge will say, all right, um, defendant A is completely wrong here, so plaintiff B gets full damages. There's always a whittling away at it or a technicality issue or something to say, well, you could have done this better. You know, we don't actually, I wasn't there, so therefore... It's not clear that Mr. McGowan actually heard the Japanese correctly because he's not a Japanese-speaking native. Oh, well, yeah, his wife might have been there, but you know, his wife might be biased because she's his wife. So because the evidence here doesn't seem to be compelling enough, in my opinion, regardless of the fact we offered him a tape recorder saying the same thing, well, you see, we can't trust this testimony. We'll find any technicality to say so. So this is the... The trend that you see in this sort of situation where Japanese judges are going to try to find fault with both sides. It's a bit disheartening. Anyway, let's uh, let's move on. I want to jump ahead to page 84 and 85, where you talk about the process for receiving citizenship, as well as can long-term visa status and whatnot. You say that although the Ministry of Justice reports that most candidates who complete the full process receive citizenship, It is unclear how many are rejected at the first screening due to, say, a lack of, quote, upright conduct. Then on page 85, you mention that you have a friend, a second-generation Zainichi Korean neighbor, who was screened and rejected for citizenship because, as he said, he had a history of parking tickets. I don't really have a question for you here, but I just wanted to note that about a year ago, I applied for age you can status, which is, you know, long-term residency. And uh, I was rejected. And my wife was kind of like, what? And so she called the immigration office. And they said, yeah, we we can't really provide any information about that. But uh, if your husband has any uh, tickets or anything like that, any has had any trouble with the law, 
he would be denied. And my wife was like, well, he had a speeding ticket three years ago. But other than that, nothing. You know, he's a he's a contributing member to society. You know, he hasn't had any legal problems whatsoever. But they view parking tickets or speeding tickets, one speeding ticket, as a valid justification for denying you your long-term residency, which I thought was just ridiculous. I mean, Japanese people get speeding tickets all the time. Yet, you know, they're citizens of Japan. They're not... (laughs) Right. Their rights as citizens are not curtailed because of traffic violations. I just... It really annoyed me. Yes, as it should. You see... I also, I, live in, I lived in Sapporo, and uh, Sapporo is it's an automotive society up there. I had a 45-kilometer commute one way every day to get to my workplace, and so I drove a lot. And I've gotten speeding tickets. I've also gotten parking tickets. I still got my permanent residency, and that was back in 1996. Which just goes to show you that there is no unified, coherent policy. As you mentioned on page 87, I'm, I'm quoting Kashiwazaki here. You, you quote him as saying, there's no unified, coherent policy that could be called the Japanese citizenship policy. But it's the same thing with long-term residency. There's just, you got a ticket, but you got nationality. I got a ticket and was denied a long-term green card. It's troubling, to say the least. I, I didn't just get um, nationality, I, uh, Japanese citizenship. I also got my permanent residency. I also got my age UK in 1996, despite having those speeding, t- speeding and parking tickets. I even lost my license because I had so many of them once, you know? Oh, so, my. Yeah, yeah. But I still got it. So You're practically a criminal then, yeah, by Japanese standards. There's plenty of <laughs> Japanese that wouldn't qualify for Japanese citizenship either under this criteria. I think what's happened is they decided to tighten things up a bit and say, okay – Generally speaking, if you deal with Japanese bureaucrats, and I've had very good experiences with them, but there's a certain culture within Japan's bureaucracy that I find really interesting, and that is the culture of Ijime. There's a sort of feeling that you get after you deal with bureaucrats long enough that they're looking for any sort of reason to trip you up, especially when you're filling out applications. I remember I had an application rejected because I didn't make my number four look like a proper four in their eyes. And I said, wait a minute, this is Arabic script here. This is not even Japanese script. And, you're, and I'm raised in a society in which this is, I'm a native, I'm a native writer of, of, a, of a number. And you're going to critique, criticize and um, reject my application because the upper two lines of the four are too close together. <laughs> and uh, they said, yeah, because we can. Japanese bureaucrats in particular, and even when I'm over filling out any applications forms now, I get so uptight about making sure the form is completely perfect because it's almost expected that a bureaucrat is going to disqualify you on whatever grounds necessary. Having everything done just right is the way that Japanese bureaucracy runs. It's good if you want to be thorough. It's bad if you want to have any sort of wiggle room for individuality in there. And when you actually feel that they're out to get you. I mean, that, that's you get paranoid about it. And I think what happened from the 2000s onwards, when Japanese were Japanese media was portraying criminals less as misunderstood outsiders, more as potential visa overstayers and purveyors of foreign crime, they decided to say, okay, yeah, all right, we'll increase visas to five years maximum, but we're not going to give too many of them. In fact, we'll bust some people that are on three three year visas down to one year visas simply because we can. It's a, it's a form of EGMA to make people remember their place and become humble before the bureaucrats. And in your case, I'm sorry to say, they probably just said, well, we can disqualify it because 
you have a black market in your record somewhere that we can cite. So therefore, it's a reason. So, okay, let's let's put him in his place and he can apply again. And, and maybe this time he won't break any laws beforehand. So apply again with no more speeding tickets. And uh, I bet you'll get it this time. Yeah, who knows? I mean, th- that's what the bureaucrat said to my wife when she called him on the phone. When she's when he said, I, "I really don't know. I can't comment." And but you know, if he had a if he had any kind of a, a, a traffic violation, that's probably it. She said, "I had a speeding ticket," and then he was like, "Okay, well, why don't you wait until that drops off his record? It takes about five years for that to happen. So I suppose in a year, I won't have anything on my record. Well, I'll try again and see what happens." You should. You deserve it. You're over there. You live there. So become a permanent resident. I recommend that for anyone who's living in Japan long term. Become a permanent resident. In the meantime, I'm going to make sure that I don't go even five kilometers or so for the speed limit. Yep. Uh, okay. Well, enough about that. Um, this next quote that I have of yours, this is from page 93, and I'm going to quote you here. Japan's registry and official population surveying systems not only reify the national narrative of monoethnic Japan, but also officially render the potential multi-ethnicity and multinationality of Wajin as invisible. Can you elaborate on that? In the previous podcast, I talked a bit about how the census forms actually explicitly say, are you Japanese? And if you say yes, that's the end of it. Are you, if you're not a Japanese, you write down your nationality. And But there's no way for you to talk about yourself in terms of ethnicity. In other words, I cannot fill out the Japanese census form and say that I'm an American-born Japanese. I can only put down that I am a Japanese. So that bleaches out all the ethnicity. It, it ethnically cleanses me in that sense, officially on the record keeping, right? So the equivalence that is made by the census form is that if you are a Japanese citizen, you are automatically a wajin as in a person who is part of the embedded power structure in Japan, the dominant majority in Japan. Please, I hope listeners had heard the previous podcast because that's where I define Wajin more thoroughly. But Wajin are people who are the dominant majority. Non-Wajin are people who are outside the dominant majority. And within Wajin, within non-Wajin, there are visible minorities that we talked about earlier and invisible minorities. I happen to be one of the visible minorities. The point that I'm trying to make here is we just don't have good data on how many people are ethnically Japanese. In other words, how diverse Japanese society really is. We don't really have good statistics on how many children are double or are multi-ethnic roots. Somewhere in your book, I'm pretty sure you said something about... 20,000 or so are born every year. Is that right? That's what the Asahi Shimbun says in one of their reports. I just reported it as I founded the Asahi Shimbun. Mm -hmm. I don't know what their source is, to be honest with you. There's just not good data on this. Right. So if the Asahi reports it, I'm sure they did their research, but they don't indicate what their source is. My point is that if you don't have this sort of thing, you're going to be able to argue that, well, because we don't have good data... We're not going to make a comment on it at all. And it's very convenient for any policymaker to say, well, we're not going to intrude upon everybody to find out what their ethnicity is because we wouldn't want to invade their privacy. That's what keeps on coming up. Whereas you could just make it optional in the census form to fill in your ethnicity as well, even if you are a Japanese or non-Japanese. The fact is the Japanese government doesn't want that data. That's interesting. I mean, if it is true that there's 20,000 or so so-called hafu kids that are born every year, in five years, that's 100,000. And if you jump ahead, you know, 20 or 30 years, you've got a bunch of quarter Japanese, so-called. I mean, if you're interested in talking about blood and and that sort of thing. Um, in, In a very real sense, this could be, how can I put it, an undermining of this sort of, uh, this emphasis on the pure blood, so to speak. 
an undermining of that society. It's, Do you think this is frightful to Japanese people? Japanese narratives, as we mentioned, since 1945 have been of the homogeneous race. We're one big happy family. And um, anything that would undermine that narrative that people have been brought up with for a couple of generations is extremely jarring because, uh, you know, you see people, especially right now with the Olympics going on right now, I saw um, Mr. Cambridge yesterday came in second to Usain Bolt. And I was like off in my chair cheering when that happened because like, Yahoo, well done, Mr. Cambridge and well done, Japan's visible minorities for showing that diversity does help Japan. It got a silver. So, I mean, I hate the sort of parade of nations and and of superiority complexes that come out of something like the Olympics. I cheer athletes as individuals. But the political ramifications of Mr. Cambridge winning could be significant if people begin to see him as a Japanese and not just a half, right? As a real Japanese. And they start seeing the benefits of multiculturalism, multi-ethnicity. Unfortunately, Darvish, also the, the baseball player, The I'm not sure. I don't think he's half American or British. Ha- but Half Iranian. Half Iranian. Um, they're popping up all over the place. Celebrities, uh, famous athletes who are, you know, quote unquote, multi-ethnic hafus. Well, we've seen those for generations now. I mean, there was even a 60s rock group, if I remember correctly, called Candies, which was all just half children. And they did a, they had some, they put out some records, things like that. You see them in the entertainment industry all the time. You see invisible minorities in the entertainment industry all the time as well. Wada Akiko, you know, the famous person on television. Sainichi Korean. So is B. Takeshi. You know, there are lots of people out there, but they still don't really come out and say very clearly, I'm a Hafu, but I'm also Japanese, just like you are, so please don't discriminate against me. The first person I've really seen do that with all with all the vim that she could was probably um, Miyamoto Adri- um, Adriana, right? The Miss Japan that came out and said that mm. she's suffering from all this. I know, I'm on the top of my chair cheering for her as well. But the Japanese media ignored that for the most part. And I think there was actually a sort of a vilification of her in some segments of the media. There was, a, there was a major sort of backlash and reaction to her visibly appearing black, but being nominated as what the Miss Japan, right? Yeah, but you're going to get that sort of reaction from every society because certain people just don't like people who are different from them being representative of them. That's the whole essence of Trumpism. I'm not really going to denigrate Japan as a whole for those sorts of bigoted, bigoted ideas. What I'm getting at, however, is the national narrative thing that says that, well, you see, we're a pure people. We don't have minorities. And yeah, this person might be Japanese, but she's Japanese with an asterisk. You see in the Japanese media quite a bit, even with the athletes that are either naturalized or half, that they're actually pointed out as being Japanese with mixed roots or whatever. But they're still not seen as full Japanese or Japanese with asterisks. And those asterisks effectively can stigmatize people and actually say that, well, they're Japanese, but with a caveat. That sort of thing must stop. uh, Mr. Cambridge, Ms. Miyamoto, they're Japanese, full stop, straight up no chaser. This concludes part one of the three-part series with Dr. Debito. You are listening to The Candies.